Hey friends, welcome to another edition of our Law and Gospel devotional, a time where each week we uh, look at God's two words through a passage of scripture, really from anywhere in the scriptures. Usually what we do is we look at some text from the upcoming lectionary for the upcoming Sunday. Uh, and it might be the epistle or the Old Testament, the psalm, usually not the gospel, because in many churches that observe the lectionary, that tends to be the one that's preached on. But good to be here with you again today. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Rocks or at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, and a contributor in many ways to 1517, including making these videos each week and co-hosting the podcast, 30 Minutes in the New Testament, as well as working in the Relations and Development Department of the organization. Thanks for joining me today. Let's go ahead and dive into... Uh, our text for today, or at least the text that we'll be looking at. Uh, so first and foremost, what I like to do each time we gather is look at the surrounding text to understand why it is these uh, various passages were chosen. So uh, the third Sunday of Easter really is all about the power. It's all about the power of the Spirit, the power of resurrection, and what that begins to do in the disciples' life. Now, it doesn't tend to manifest itself in the same way that John Jacobs and the power team manifested power by ripping up phone books and doing other things. But nonetheless, you get the point that it really is about the spirit descending upon them and giving them power to do new things. And so if you look at the epistle text for the week from 1 John 3, you're going to see that it's really about the resurrection power of the spirit to uh, fight sin so that you might love your neighbor and pursue righteousness. If you looked at the Psalm, Psalm 4, it really has to do with the power of being set apart by the Spirit so as to be protected, like a hen protects her chicks under her wings, so the Spirit protects us even against our enemies. And then if you look at the Gospel text, it's really about the Spirit's power to preach, especially towards the end of that passage. And of course, the picture I have accompanying this is one of 1517's own contributors, a man who emphasizes the importance of the preacher a whole heck of a lot, Dr. Stephen Paulson. And our our other text, which typically it would be a passage from the Old Testament, but these last couple of weeks, it's been from the book of Acts to kind of show the early history of what happens in the church's life. It comes out of Acts 3, 11 through 21, and it's really about the Spirit's power to repent sinners through his word of law and gospel to cause people to turn direction, to turn around, to turn from their sins and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So that really is the thrust. And it, and it really is just capturing a portion of a sermon that Peter is going to deliver, which we'll see in just a little bit. So uh, first and foremost, you ought to know that this pre this sermon is very pointed, and there is no doubt that as the listeners hear Peter preach that they know he is speaking to them because he it's as if you can see him pointing his finger right at them and indeed pointing his finger right at us. He is not shy about bringing the words full force to the crowd that he is speaking to. But for just a little context here to get into the passage in Acts 3, uh, Peter and John have just uh, healed a man in Jesus' name. And of course, because uh, the crowds have seen this healing, a healing of somebody that they knew very well, a beggar that they knew very well, they're blown away. And of course, the first thing they're prone to thinking is that Peter and John must be some really, really special people. 
And so it begins. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? First things first, Peter and John are doing something that's very important when it comes to signs and wonders. They are telling the crowd what the purpose of the sign or wonder is. Remember, it is a sign and the sign is giving us information. It's pointing us to something. What is that something? Well, it's a someone. Signs and wonders to the degree that they are done are always meant to point to Jesus. They are meant to give the crowd a reason to listen to the claims about Jesus. Jesus just healed this man. Now I want to tell you why you need to be healed by Jesus as well. That's the point. And that's why you see an abundance of miracles in the book of Acts in the early days of the church, because they're going into uncharted territory in which people would have no reason to give them a hearing unless they had some authentic authentication that they had uh, the divine one on their side. So that's the first thing Peter and John do. And then the next thing they do is my good golly gracious and another G word for good measure. They bring down the hammer of God's law. There's just no other way of saying it. Look what he says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's primarily speaking entirely to a Jewish audience. It's in Jerusalem. This God, your God, our God, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You did it when he decided, had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Indeed, if you remember, we're told that Barabbas, who is exchanged for Jesus, is an insurrectionist and a murderer. He continues, and you killed the author of life. Notice very, very clearly that this is a statement about Jesus's deity. This is one of those passages you can go to with someone who would deny that Jesus is divine or that the Bible teaches such a thing and say, literally, Jesus is given a synonym for God when he's called the author of life. And in this strange juxtaposition, the people are condemned for killing the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. That's the whole thing. The whole thing for the apostles' ministries is, uh, ministry is we witnessed him crucified and risen from the dead. Nevertheless, you can clearly see the law doing its work here. The law is proclaimed and that they are held responsible. Indeed, all people are held responsible. There is a sense when we are preaching God's law that we are saying to everyone, you are judged, you are guilty, you have some part to play in the crucifixion of the author of life, Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't stop there. He does wanna make sure that they give credit where credit is due. Again, don't look at us, look at Jesus, whom you crucified, verse 16, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. 
So again, credit where credit's due. Peter is using the sign that God performed by his spirit through them to point them to Jesus. That is indeed the point. And so he has he has really slammed them with the hammer of God's law. No doubt about that. He has held them accountable. And yet, of course, that's not the end of the sermon. It never is the end of God's sermons. God always brings good news to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is about to get to. He continues, verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by uh, the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is really Peter's way of still kind of condemning them for not knowing their Bibles. And this is a crowd that indeed was probably quite proud of the fact that they knew their Bibles. But Peter points out to them, you didn't study hard enough. You didn't look at what the prophets actually said, that this Jesus would suffer and die and be risen again. You can find examples of that most uh, powerfully, maybe in Isaiah 52 and 53, which was a text that frankly was often ignored before Jesus came. So he continues. Now we get to this gospel. Now we get to good news. It's time to be repented. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, you might say, well, why do you say be repented? Why do you act as if this is something that they're passive in when Peter gives them a command? Repent, therefore, sounds like something they have to do. Well, if you continue on towards the end of the sermon at verse 26, what you're going to read is this. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by doing what? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Same idea, but who's doing the verbs? Of course, God is doing the verbs. God's desire is to turn them from their wickedness. And indeed, if it wasn't for him turning us from our wickedness, we would never do it in and of ourselves. He has to grant us the faith to believe, and he has to grant us the ability to repent at all, to turn toward him at all. We would never do it in and of ourselves. And what is the result of God's repenting us? Well, we are wiped clean. The text says here, it's translated in the, in the ESV, blotted out. But I actually like, because of what happens in the next verse, I actually like the translation washed away more. Because as you'll see, it fits because the next verse says in verse uh, uh, 20, and we'll go back to verse 19 just to get it in context, but it mentions something that has to do more with washing. Listen again, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out or washed away, that times of refreshing may come. And when we hear the word refreshing, we associate it with, with being sort of washed over, maybe taking a shower, maybe uh, being drenched in cold water on a very hot day. But it's this idea of, of refreshing, of being renewed, that that may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed. And here's these very, very, very significant words that I've talked about a thousand times for you. Who is Jesus appointed for? The very people that placed him on the cross, the very people that turned away from him. That's who he's appointed for, for the purpose of refreshing them for the purpose of forgiving them, for the purpose of refreshing and forgiving you. 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what's the result of our sins being blotted out as God has repented us? Well, we are refreshed or renewed until the day of restoration when Christ comes again. So you can see that Peter really kind of in a very brief time in this sermon covers the essential elements of the gospel message. Christ lived, suffered, died, rose again, and is coming again, and in the meantime is forgiving and redeeming sinners until that day. It's all there. It doesn't take long, and yet both elements of a proper sermon are there. Both law and gospel, both of God's two words, are found in this very early sermon in the book of Acts. And so this is really what a law and gospel sermon sounds like. I don't know how well you can see this picture, depending on which device you're watching this, but this is one of my favorite paintings from uh, Reformation, really a Lutheran painter named Lucas Cronach, and it actually is called Law and Gospel. And in it, he attempts to show what happens when the law is preached and what happens when the gospel is preached. If you look on the left-hand side of the, of the uh, or it would be, I guess, your right, maybe, depending on how you're watching this, you're going to see what happens as a result of law preaching. Well, the sinner, pictured naked here, like Adam, is prone to run away. And who's chasing him? Death. What is God like in the preaching of the law? Well, he's far away. He's up in the heavens. He's not approachable. Everything is nothing but condemnation. But then on the other side of the painting, you have one, most likely John the Baptist or some other preacher, pointing to the crucified Christ. And where is God now? God is near to the sinner and the sinner is not fleeing because death and hell are trampled under the foot of Jesus and his cross. And so everything changes because now we've been declared forgiven in spite of the fact that our sin is the reason he went to the cross in the first place. This is what law and gospel preaching does. It kills the sinner and it makes alive the sinner and we need it every single week. We need to be killed by the law's work and we need to be made alive. That is the rhythm of the Christian life and that is why God's two words always need to be preached from beginning to end until indeed that day of final restoration that Jesus promises will come to pass. So that is our devotion for today. Uh, hope that's uh, encouraging to you. And hope you have a great rest of the week. I myself, this particular week, are, am getting ready to load my family up in a car and head down to beautiful northwest Arkansas for a conference down there in which I'll be emceeing and uh, joining a great crew of people. So uh, if you're down there, if you're planning on being there, make sure to come and say hi. Love to meet you. Otherwise, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. God's richest blessings to you.